0: Today's reading comes from 2 Kings uh, 24, from verse 18 and chapter 25, the whole way through. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah, she was from Libna. Zedekiah did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as Jehoiakim had done. Because because of the Lord's anger, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally banished them from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. In the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem with his entire army. They laid siege to the city and built a siege wall against it all around. The city was under siege until King Zedekiah's eleventh year. By the ninth day of the fourth month the famine was so severe in the city that the common people had no food. Then the city was broken into and all the warriors fled at night by, the way, by way of the city gate between the two walls near the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans surrounded the city. As the king made his way along the route to the Arabah, the Chaldean army pursued him and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. Zedekiah's entire army left him and scattered. The Chaldeans seized the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. Finally, the king of Babylon blinded Zedekiah, bound him in bronze chains and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guards, a servant of the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. He burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all the great houses. The whole Chaldean army, with the captain of the guards, Torn, tore down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Nabuzaradan, the captain of the guards, deported the rest of the people who remained in the city, the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the population. But the captain of the guards left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and farmers. Now the Chaldeans broke into pieces the bronze pillars of the law temple, the water carts, and the bronze basin which were in the Lord's temple and carried the bronze to Babylon. They took the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the priest's service. The captain of the guards took away the firepans and sprinkling basins, whatever was gold or silver. As for the two pillars, the one basin and the water carts that Solomon had made for the Lord's Temple, the weight of the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. One pillar was twenty-seven feet tall and had a bronze capital on top of it. The capital, encircled by a grating and pomegranates of bronze, stood five feet high. The second pillar was the same, with its own grating. The captain of the guards also took away Zariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the priest of the second rank, and the three doorkeepers. From the city, he took a court official who had been appointed over the warriors. Five trusted royal aides found in the city, the secretary of the commander of the army who enlisted the people of the land for military duty, and 60 men from the common people who are found within the city. Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guards, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Ribla. The king of Babylon put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah went into exile from its land. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon appointed Gedaliah son of Ahakam son of Shephan, over the rest of the people he left in the land of Judah. When all the commanders of the armies, when all the commanders of the armies, they and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. The commanders included Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, Johanan, son of Kareah, Seraya, son of Tenumeth, the Netaphathite, <laughs> and Jezaniah, son of the Mecathite, they and their men. Gedaliah swore an oath to them and their men, assuring them, Don't be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well for you. In the seventh month, however, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, son of Elishema, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah, and he died. Also they killed the Judeans and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people from the youngest to the oldest and the commanders of the army left and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. On the twenty-seventh day of the twelfth month, of the thirty-seventh year of the exile of Judah's of Judas king Jehoiakim, In the year Evel Merodach became king of Babylon, he pardoned King Jehoiakim of Judea and released him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and set his throne over the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes. And he dined regularly in the presence of the king of Babylon for the rest of his life. As for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king, a portion for each day for the rest of his life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Nalika, and well done. Uh, Not the easiest of passages to uh, mumble through. So uh, we've been looking as a church together at the story of Israel, the story of God's people as, as they have travelled from the Garden of Eden and they're heading towards the Garden City in Revelation. Now we finally have come to the destruction of Israel here in exile uh, to Babylon. And as we've been moving from the Garden to the Garden City, it seems as uh, like a massive major failure on Israel and God's part, doesn't it? I mean, let's just remind ourselves where we've been so far. We started way back in the Garden of Eden and man and mankind had a good and strong relationship with God. And Adam and Eve walked and talked with him in the cool of the day. That's where our story starts. That's where God's story starts. And like many good stories, our story, your story, my story, God's story uh, starts in the comfort of home. It is like a hobbit living in a comfortable hole, you know, or like children playing around the house discovering this wardrobe of fur coats, or like Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Driver were proud to say they were perfectly normal, thank you very much. These epic tales begin in places of familiarity, of comfort, of normality. This is how it should be. We should be walking and talking with God playing together, being normal. But like every story, this story, this greatest of stories, has a conflict, a conflict that drives the story forward. Almost as soon as we meet Adam and Eve, uh, the story goes wrong conflict enters the story but this conflict isn't just a small thing it is sin entering the world threatening the very foundations of of everything god had created it affects everything the whole creation breaks down because of sin in fact when we read in the new testament in romans we we read that the whole creation groans under the weight of sin And so the plot line of the story uh, asks the question, how is this problem going to be dealt with? How is this issue, this conflict, this sin going to be resolved? And God promises right after Adam and Eve sinned that one day, one will come who will deal with the conflict. One day, someone will come to set it right. But for that to happen, A people has to be established first. A nation has to be created to carry on and to be bearers of this promise. And so God calls to him, Abram, he makes a covenant with him. He says, out of your family will come the one who's going to deal with this sin problem. He's going to be the one through whom the whole world will be blessed. And it happens. Abraham's family grows into this nation of Israel. Israel becomes the people who bear the promise, who are supposed to be the light to the nations, to show the world uh, what it means to be uh, God's people. They end up in Egypt, but God saves them from Egypt. He leads them through Moses uh, to the front of the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, and there God makes an agreement with his people. He says, If you follow me, If you worship me, if you will be my faithful people, then you will experience goodness and blessing. You truly will be this light to the nations, this instrument by which the nations will be blessed. But if you don't uh, obey, if you turn away from me, if you start worshipping the idols of the land, then I will discipline you so as to make you turn back to me. You may remember when we read uh, the book of Leviticus, when we preached through that, we, we saw how God spells this out in great detail in uh, how this agreement between him and Israel would work. In Leviticus 26, for example, he explains the process that he's going to go through to bring the people back to him, to, to, um, to discipline their hearts so that they would turn back and worship him only. He says, firstly, that he will bring a kind of terror on them, a wasting disease, so that they will turn back. And then secondly, if they don't obey him, he will discipline them seven times. Why? In order to break their strong pride. He will cause famine to enter the land, and the people will suffer until they acknowledge his kingship. Then thirdly, if they still act with hostility, he will send animals to ravage the land, so the people won't have peace. And if they still uh, won't obey, there will be another famine, even worse than the first, and people will have to ration out their bread by weight because the people will not have food. And then, if they still don't bow, uh, bow down to him, if they still don't turn back to him, he says, then I will discipline you with furious hostility, we have it translated in the CSB. And only after all of these other steps had been taken, God says in Leviticus 26, "If you still don't obey me, then I will turn away from you, and I will reject Israel." And in Leviticus 26, it spelled out exactly what that rejection is going to involve. If you go and read it, you will see that Israel's cities will be destroyed. They will be left in ruin, their sanctuaries will be devastated. It spells out that the land will be emptied of its people and the people will be scattered among the nations. It's pretty heavy stuff. This is what God lays out before his people and this is the contract, in essence, that Israel signs with him. They accept the terms and conditions. And so for the next 900 years, this cycle plays out. Between uh, Moses and Mount Mount Horeb and here the exile, the destruction of Jerusalem, there's about 900 years by my reckoning uh, between these two events. And all throughout this time the people reject God, he sends a famine or a pestilence or an enemy army or something to turn their hearts back to him. And often they do, they turn back to him for a season and then they reject him again. But as we read in our passage this morning in uh, 2 Kings 24 20, because of the Lord's anger it finally came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah where he banished them from his presence. And then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. It takes almost a millennium but at last God's patience with this Stiff-necked people has run out. It comes to the point in Jerusalem and Judah where he finally banishes them from his presence. What a tragedy. But even here, notice how this happens. It says, then he banishes um, them from his presence, and then... Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon even up to this very last moment God was sovereignly controlling restricting how badly things could go wrong but when he rejects them then almost immediately Israel goes and does the worst thing they can they pick a fight with the ancient Near East's worst schoolyard bully Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon and as predicted 900 years before The nation that God has put together has finally fallen apart. At this stage, the northern kingdom, Israel, had been destroyed already and now Judah too, the last stronghold of God's people, falls apart. And in the story that God has been writing, this is the low point. This is the crisis point. This is the, we never thought it would come to this kind of point. And as we read this, we think, what are we supposed to learn? from this destruction of Israel and Judah? What are, the, what are the lessons for us here? What are we supposed to understand from this piece of scripture? Well, I can think of three things that spring immediately to mind. The first lesson, I think, is this. God's patience is very great. God's patience is very great. He had allowed almost a thousand years to pass since he made the agreement with Israel until this point. He had sent prophet after prophet, nation after nation, disaster after disaster to discipline his people every time with the intention of turning their hearts back to him and they would for a short moment and then they would start worship idols again. For 900 years God was patient with his people. For 900 years he waited patiently for them to turn back to him, actively trying to turn their hearts For 900 years he worked uh, to, to change their hearts. His patience is very great indeed. And this has implications for our lives too, friends. Have you ever wondered why it is that God doesn't zap you straight away after you sin? Have you ever wondered why those secret sins that we all have don't seem to really have immediate consequences. Have you ever wondered why God allows us, allows people to walk away from him for a while? It is because his patience is very great. In Hebrew, the phrase is, he is God with a very long nose. (laughs) That's the way they say it in Hebrew. His patience is very great. He's giving you and me every opportunity to turn back to him, every opportunity to turn from our sin and to worship him again, every opportunity to lay down our pride, to bend our knees to the authority he has over our lives, come to him in faith and in love. Friends, he's giving you this opportunity today to turn back to him, turn from where you are now, turn while there still is time, turn while his patience holds. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. So turn back to him now, bow your knee, accept his authority, seek the Lord today while he still may be found, because as patient as he is, eventually your time will run out. That could be today. That could be tomorrow. That could be 20 years from now. That could be 100 years from now. But eventually your time will be up, so seek him while he may be found. That's lesson one. Lesson two is this. God stays true to his promises. Remember, God had laid out this eventuality for Israel hundreds and hundreds of years before it actually happened. They agreed to it. And he warned them again and again and again that this will happen. And now, having given them literally all the time in the world, he causes what he promised all those years ago to happen. What God says will happen, will happen. God's word is always true. It is always trustworthy. And so because he said it would happen, it happened. They were conquered. Even Judah was conquered and destroyed. What he said would happen, happened. It might not happen today, it might not happen tomorrow, in fact it might not even happen in your lifetime or even your children's lifetime, but what God has promised will come to pass. And I think this is a great encouragement for us, isn't it? It it gives us a great uh, sense, an anchor of hope. Remember the promises that God makes to those who believe in Jesus? He says, one day you will be with me. One day sin will be destroyed. One day all mourning and crying and pain will be gone. That is why we can sing, comfort, comfort all my people. Because these things, this order of things will pass away and one day we will enter into an eternal life with him because God said so. And we can take great comfort from this. What God says will happen, will happen. Allow me to pause and digress here for just a moment. Can we just reflect for a moment together on the fact, on the amazing fact of just how mind-boggling this is, that what God had promised in Leviticus 900 years before this event comes to pass in almost the exact way that he said it would. There is no way that Moses, who wrote the book of Leviticus, could have known, could have conceived even of the people of Israel and the nation of Israel the way it was, let alone the exile, the destruction of Jerusalem, the desecration of the temple, the sanctuary. There is no way that he, writing a millennium before these events, could have predicted exactly how these things would happen and with such accuracy. And yet, even... Non-believing scholars agree that the Hebrew that Leviticus is written in is kind of ancient. And yet it predicts with this perfect accuracy what eventually happens to God's people. Isn't that incredible how consistent this story that God has been writing is? It is almost as if, one might say, Scripture had a divine author. As if someone knew... What he was doing when he instructed the people to write it is almost as if god was the one who was putting the story together but god being god writes his story over centuries not just years but you see how important it is then friends how important it is for us to understand our place in the bigger picture, how important the Old Testament is for us to understand where we fit in the story. Your story, my story, Israel's story, it's all one story. We are all part of the same grand literary masterpiece that ultimately centres with Jesus at the core. It is God's story of his love being played out over thousands of years, being played out even today do you see how foolish it is to say something like well i'm just a new testament christian i only pay attention to jesus's words i don't need the old testament or that the god of the old testament is not the same as the god of the new testament friends without the old testament (laughs) the new testament doesn't make any sense It would be like jumping into the middle of a story just as the climax happens. You wouldn't have any context to understand what was really going on. I think it's amazing to see how God has been at work since the foundation of the world, how he's allowed us to see how he's been weaving the story together over centuries. I think that is just amazing. I don't know about you. All right, digression over. Lesson two is that God stays true to his word. What he says will happen, will happen. We see this play out all throughout scripture. And then lesson three is that God is merciful and he protects his promise. You see, when we get to the end of two kings, we get to the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. The temple is completely destroyed. All of the implements and the tools and the decorations are destroyed, broken, carried off as the spoils of war into Babylon. The temple itself is burnt down. Now remember how important the temple uh, was to the, to the very nation of Israel, to Judah. What, it was this permanent symbol of God's presence in their midst. The temple and the tabernacle before it was both a sign of God's presence with his people and the actual place where he made his glory visible. And so having read the story from the Garden of Eden, we can see how devastating it is for the temple to be destroyed. We can understand why the Israelites felt so lost as they sat there by the rivers of Babylon. God has allowed these foreign invaders to remove the symbol of his presence from his people and no longer can they actually come and offer the kinds of sacrifices they needed to to atone for their sin. Yes, when the army of Babylon invades, the people are left hungry and physically broken, emotionally destroyed, all of those things are true. But it is far more important that the people are left spiritually abandoned. And so as God's people are being carried off into Babylon, as they are spat out of the promised land, as they get carted off into exile, the temple of God's presence is destroyed. And the king of Judah is taken into captivity, and if we were an Israelite reading this story, we would be left reeling, asking the question, is God done with Israel? Is this the end of our story? Has he finally given up on these people? What about his promise to deal with the great conflict of sin? What of his covenant with Abraham, that that his offspring would be this blessing to the whole world? What of God's promise to David that his offspring will reign uh, forever? The nation is destroyed, the people are captured, they are spiritually abandoned and that is where the book of 2 Kings finishes with this giant question mark, what will happen in the story of God? Now if you were an alert reader of Leviticus 26, which I'm sure you all are, uh, you would see that the answer has already been predicted again by God a thousand years before. Listen to what he says around verse 44. Now bear in mind, uh, he has just said to to the people of Israel that he's going to send wave after wave of this discipline to turn their hearts back to him, famine, diseases, armies and whatever. And if they keep rejecting him, then he will reject them and they will be taken out of the land. So that's the context. And then immediately after that, uh, immediately after that warning, he says this, but... When they confess their sins, not if, when they confess their sins, their unfaithfulness and hostility towards me, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And verse 44, while they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them and break my covenant with them. Why? Since I am the Lord their God. For their sake, he says, I will remember the the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of all the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. Isn't that amazing? God cannot help but keep his covenant. Why? Because that's who he is. Because I am the Lord their God, he says, even in the land of desolation, even in exile, I will not reject them so as to destroy them, because that is who God is. God remains God even in exile. Friends, it is so much easier for us to turn from our sin while things are going well, while we are still in the land, while God is still being patient for us. It is so much better for us to turn to him when our lives are not in ruin. But how often is it true that it actually takes the destruction of our lives before we will bend, before we will turn, before we will come and confess our sin? our unfaithfulness to God and turn to Him. But here is the promise. If we do, if we do turn, no matter how late the hour, no matter how far gone we might think we are, no matter how far fallen we are, while we still breath, draw breath, there is time to turn and be saved. Is that not the story of the thief on the cross? There he is, crucified with Jesus, nothing to his name. He hangs there by his own admission, justly condemned, and yet even, even in those last few moments before he dies, he recognises Jesus' lordship. He recognises Jesus' authority. He recognises Jesus' innocence. And he said to him, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. If they confess their sin, their iniquity, their unfaithfulness, then I will remember my covenant. Friends, God is patient. Yes, he is. Eventually, his patience will run out. Yes, he will bring destruction true to his promises and warnings. But all the more, yes, he is merciful. He is merciful if only we would turn to him and seek his forgiveness. He will give it for Jesus' sake. I mean, Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple and how your people are carried off, we can see even parallels in our own lives where, uh, where you have worked um, in our lives to bring us back to you. Sometimes, Lord, this process has been incredibly painful, but you do it so that we will turn. And so we want to praise you and thank you for that. We pray that you will let your work do its work in our hearts. Help us to turn, O Lord. Help us to seek you while you may be found. Change our hearts that we will do that even today, knowing that one day our time will be up. One day that might even be today. It will be too late. Lord, save us even as you have saved the thief on the cross. Remember us when you come into your kingdom. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.